0: So welcome welcome to the Lights FM seminar um, on How Can We Trust the Bible, hosted by Canterbury Gardens Community Church. And so my name's Ethan, and I'm um, part of the Young Adults Ministry team. And we are privileged to have Robert Martin here today, um, who will be um, speaking to us. Um, he's from the City Bible Forum. Um, he's the director there, and he's also... Um, sometimes gives talks in Light FM as well. So he'll be our presenter and our host. Um, We are happy to welcome all of you wherever you are in your position to the Christian faith, whether a skeptic or a strong believer or anywhere in between. So our hope is to interrogate this important question of whether we can trust the Bible, um, so how valid it is um, and how much um, we can you know, believe what it says. And this is, you know, one of the most fundamental concepts of the Christian faith. So the program for, di- for today will have three different parts. So firstly, we'll have a short interview with Robert so that we can get to know him better. And secondly, we'll hear what Robert has to say on the topic. And finally, uh, there'll be a Q&A session where anyone can send in questions to uh, a certain number that we'll put up later. Um, and this can be done like during the presentation or afterwards. And we'll hope to get the questions up um, so that Robert can answer them. Um, But uh, we do have a limited amount of time, so uh, we'll only be able to address a number of the questions. Um, So if your question is not answered, um, there's always the opportunity to talk to Robert or Pastor Shabu, who's at the back there. Um, And I'm sure both of them will be more than happy to answer any of the questions that you might have. So um, this session will also be recorded and potentially broadcast at a later date on the 89.9 Light FM Bigger Questions radio show. Um, After broadcasting, it should be available online as well um, on the Bigger Questions podcast series. So without further ado, I'd like to invite Robert Martin up and... I haven't said anything yet, so so, um, I do
1: appreciate that, that's very kind.
0: Yeah, so uh, Robert, uh, can you tell us a bit more about yourself and uh, your experience with Jesus and the Christian faith?
1: Yeah, well I grew up in a Christian home. and uh, my dad was a pastor of a church, and I grew up not really liking going to church. Uh, I noticed there's a couple of younger people here. When I was that age, I really hated going to church, so well done for being here. Um, but I think as I was in my teenage years, I think I began to appreciate... Well, this, this, big, this was actually a really important question for me, knowing, understanding the truth of the Bible or understanding if I can trust it. So I saw some, uh, some helpful resources from the Bible Society when I was about 14, which really helped me understand that actually the Bible can be trusted. But I still didn't really see its relevance to my life. I think that it was when I got to university that I really began to understand more about the, the Christian message and what it meant for me. And I really thought that it was really worth giving my life to and following. So I think, yeah, so I grew up... So it's more a matter of understanding the big question of uh, the truth of the Christian message was a really important one for me. And it still remains a, a, an important one. Hence, that's why I spend a lot of time thinking about these types of questions. Um, and then uh it also then the, the question of so what and so hence the hope the christian message brings was really important is really important for me as well thinking about um the big questions around death and dying etc were important uh things for me and i think in the bible we have words of hope and life and they are predicated though on the bible being true if they're worthwhile hope following or not so we'll come at, we'll explore a bit more of that i suppose as i go in but that's for me is really my personal
0: experience yeah. yeah, excellent. And so, how long have you been in ministry, and what does working as the director of the City Bible Forum involve?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I've been, well, I mean, uh, in some respects, we're all, and anyone who's a Christian believer is in ministry for as, is, as long as they're a believer, they're doing some sort of service. That's what ministry means. But I, I left, I used to work uh, in insurance. Sorry about that. Uh, but uh, before, so I, I did a commerce degree at uni, wanted to make lots of money. I didn't do insurance, and I realized you don't make lots of money doing insurance. But, um, but I, I felt I could have a call to full-time gospel vocational ministry uh, after I'd been there for a few years. Um, then I, so I went to Bible college, and, and et cetera. Then finished that, um, trying to work out what do I do next. And I'd had some background in the commercial world, so, I'd done, um, so I thought working with City Bible Forum, which is working with workers in the city. or It's a workplace ministry. That's what we do, try to help workers explore the big questions of life. Um, So I thought that was a natural fit. And so uh, I've been doing this since the beginning of 2010, so about um, eight and a half years. Uh, What it means is really meeting with lots of people, mainly in the city, people who are working, uh, helping with work, Christian believers in the city, trying to think through what does it mean to be a Christian in the workplace. But also for those who aren't of faith, uh, trying to help them explore the big questions of life. And one of the things that we've developed is um, the radio show and podcast, which you've hopefully got a fly there, about, called Bigger Questions. It's our main way of engaging workers in the city with the big questions of life. So it's an interview show where I interview someone about uh, a topic, about a big question. And uh, it's broadcast there, so Light FM have picked it up and, there, and we've worked with them. So I don't actually work for Light FM, I just want to clarify that. So, but I have a show that is broadcast on Light FM and I work for city Bible Forum. Uh, and they they really like the show. It really works for them. It's on broadcast Sunday nights at nine o'clock. Uh, tonight's show is actually is the Bible too weird to be believed, and it's actually a really great, sh- uh, really great conversation with a guy called Tom French, who's written a book called Weird, Rude, Funny and Nude or something. Well, not some of those lines. It's about the Bible exposed. That's what he says. It's always weird, f- rude, funny and nude. I, I've got to get the radio. Anyway, it, it's um it's a great conversation talking about some of the weird parts of the Bible. So um yeah, so my job. So what that looks like, I suppose, is, is a great variety. But I do enjoy exploring some of the big questions of life. And that's really what my passion is. And it's great that some of that passion can come to be shared on Light FM and beyond. And also tonight, uh, just to clarify, tonight's won't actually be a Bigger Questions episode. I'm just happy to, I'm happy for it to be recorded and released, but it's not actually gonna go on the Bigger Questions okay. podcast. Sorry, yeah, it's just, it was the original plan was we were thinking of that, but the way things worked out, it's just not, yeah, it's not, right. we're not gonna do that. So it just got me. Sorry. No <laughs> so yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. So thank you for sharing with us, That's and okay. we look forward to hearing what you have for us today. May, no I, may I pray for you? Please, briefly. yeah, that would be great. Yep. Um, dear Lord, we thank you for Robert. Um, we pray that you give him wisdom from his spirit as he communicates with us today on this topic, and I pray that you guide his speech and answers to the questions, that you help all of us to seek um, the objective truth on this topic together. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Well, thanks very much for coming out on a lovely... Uh, Sunday afternoon to to explore. I think this is a very very important topic, and it became a particularly important topic for me when I was at Bible College, because at that stage I would left my great job in insurance and and I really wrestled with the Bible, because uh, at that stage the this was about twelve or so years ago. There's been a, actually I'll refer to them in some of my, um, in some of my. Oh, this doesn't seem to be. Is this working anymore? Oh, here we go. No, whoops, sorry. There we go. All right, Sorry, it's, 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 it's picked it up. Um, and so for me, this was a really important topic, uh, thinking about can we trust the Bible? Because I was really confronted firsthand with the, um, uh, a group of writers and thinkers called the New Atheists. I'll, I'll mention them in a second. But uh, a lot of... And, I, and so what I did in my uh, final year of Bible college was actually my honors thesis was really exploring what these new atheists had to say about the historical Jesus. And really, in the end, it was exploring about how can we trust the Bible. So for me, this was a, a thing that I spent a lot of my time, energy, and effort thinking about, trying to understand. It wasn't simply so that I could answer hard questions, so that I could do seminars at churches. For me, it was actually a, a personal journey as I was trying to wrestle with understanding my faith because, as I mentioned before, if I, didn't want, if I don't want to believe it if it's not true. Uh, I was looking for the hope in the Christian message, but I don't want to believe it if it's not true. So for me, it was uh, so something that I've really spent a lot of time wrestling with. So I suppose I want to, to, this afternoon, think a bit about this, this book, the Bible. What is it? Is it a fairy story? A fantasy? Or is it history? Is it fact or, or fiction? Because many in our world today claim that the Bible is nothing more than fairy tales. They say that it isn't historical, that it contains little, if any, truth. Now, modern critics of the religion focus their attacks on the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the, in the New Testament part of the Bible. Now, Richard Dawkins, one of the world's leading atheists, writes in his bestseller, The God Delusion. He says that the Gospels are ancient fiction, just like the Da Vinci Code. They are invented, made up, fiction. They are not reliable accounts of what happened in the real world. Now, contemporary philosopher Michel Onfray, in his book Atheist Manifesto, which I've got there as well, makes similar claims. He says that the Bible is a myth, a fable, and it has no place in the modern secular world. Uh, he asserts that the Gospels were an improbable story built on the wind, and hence concludes that nothing of what remains can be trusted. Uh, other um, atheist Sam Harris claims that the Bible is brimming with lies and the late Christopher Hitchens asserted that the Gospels are most certainly not literal truth. And you might have heard those views yourself, you may even hold them yourself, but these intelligent modern popular writers assert that the Gospels are not historically reliable. They are no more than fiction, fairy tales or fantasy and we cannot trust them. And as a result they conclude it's not reasonable to believe the claims of Jesus that are found in these works. They claim that because the Gospels are basically fairy stories and it's pointless believing in what they have to say, you shouldn't base your life on it. And as I said, this might be you. You might think that the Gospels are nice stories, perhaps a few less car chases than the uh, Da Vinci Code, but still nothing more than ancient fiction. So today we're going to explore this big question. Can we trust the Bible? It's an important question because, as I said before, if it isn't, then if these atheists are right, then uh, if nothing can be trusted, then it means that, well, G- Jesus' invitation to follow him may be fraudulent. We'd be unsure if Jesus' death on the cross really, uh, for our sins, really did bring forgiveness. We have no reasonable reason to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead to offer us hope and new life. Because unlike other major world religions, Christianity is an historical religion. And if we can't trust the New Testament, then it can't actually be the truth. So if the events recorded in the the Bible, particularly I'm going to focus on the New Testament today, because the whole Bible would take us a long time. I don't think you mentioned before that we won't be here all night. So I just want to make that clear. We're not planning to be here all night, although we could. Um, But... um, But I suppose I'm going to make the the point is, if the events recorded in the New Testament particularly didn't happen, then Christianity becomes actually completely worthless. The atheist would be right, it would be unreasonable and probably irrational to believe to be a Christian. But if the events in the New Testament did happen, that, that then begins to change things, doesn't it? Then Christianity could perhaps be the truth and suddenly the claims in the New Testament become very relevant and important in our lives. So the question of whether we can trust the Bible is crucially important and possibly one of the most important questions that we could ever answer. So well done for coming out to explore this question on a sunny Sunday afternoon. Because if they are reliable, then Jesus is the truth and we probably should follow him. If they're fantasy, fiction or fraud, then we can ignore Jesus and we should probably just go out and enjoy the sunshine now and leave church. So the big question... Can we trust the Bible? Now, to help us answer this question, I'm actually, interestingly, going to look at a part of the New Testament, part of the Bible, to see what it claims for itself. And we're going to look at this, if you have a Bible with you, or you have a phone or something, actually, I am going to bring it up on the screen, but it's just if you wanted to keep it open in front of you. I'm going to be looking at the first four verses of the the Gospel of Luke. Uh, And these four verses actually give us vitally important reasons to believe that we actually can trust what's written here. So Luke here says, I'll just read it out for us, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Now I'm going to, this, this unpacks i think a few uh, key reasons to believe that we can trust what's written here um uh, the, the first one is that the type of literature we have here intends to record history the goal is to actually record what happened the second point is that the new testament is based on the recollections of eyewitnesses and the third the author luke uh who the name the book is named after is careful and accurate in recording historical details. So I'm going to unpack each of those in turn. So let's start with the type of literature that we read. Now, when we read these verses about Luke's purpose and style of writing, he tells us what he intends to do with his writing. Now, we ask, does he intend, does he think he's writing fiction? Does he start with something like, you know, Once Upon a Time, or It Was a Dark and Stormy Night, or the renowned curator Jacques Sontier staggered through the vaulted archway of the museum's grand gallery? That's the beginning of the Da Vinci Code. In case you haven't read that, sorry. Just, 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 just to clarify. Um, so, what does Luke? What is Luke intend to do here? Does he intend to write fiction, or what does he intend to write something else? Well, what Luke intends to do is to actually write an account of the life and works of Jesus, who has an, is an historical figure. Luke was attempting to what happened. Is he was attempting to write what actually happened? In the real world. Now there's remarkable similarities um, in these opening four verses to other ancient historians as they begin their works. But Luke wasn't just writing a general history, he was writing about the things that have been fulfilled among us, as it says there. He was writing about the life and works of a person named Jesus the Christ. Luke was concerned with recording the history of an individual, which means that he was actually trying to write a biography. Indeed, in fact, we should view the four Gospels as a form of ancient biography. Now, literary genre is the key to a work's interpretation. When you know what you're reading, it actually helps you interpret it. Now, sometime back, I got a bit of a shock when I was looking on Facebook and a friend of mine shared this news story. It said the headline read, Tickets for the Adelaide Test Match Mistakenly Sell Out After 15 Minutes. Now, I was a bit stunned by this because I thought, wow, what's happened here? And the article is explaining how people were desperate to get tickets for the hotly anticipated Adele concert. Yet they confused with Adele, with Adelaide, and hence overexcited Adele fans mistakenly purchased all the available tickets for the upcoming Adelaide Test Match. Now, initially I was confused, but then I understood and I realized the genre of the article. This article's not actually trying to report history or truth. The article's actually a joke. I'm sorry if you actually were one of those people who did, perhaps maybe you did confuse Adele for the Adelaide test. Um, but, um, but it's in the, the, so the genre, the type of literature we have here is actually satire. It's mockery. It's humor. It's not meant to be taken seriously. So it's a joke. And in understanding the genre of a piece of work, or understanding the, the genre of the Gospels helps us interpret them. And as I said said before, scholars generally agree that the Gospels are in the form of an ancient Greco-Roman biography. Now, ancient biographies are composed of continuous prose narratives with stories, anecdotes, and sayings and speeches, focusing on a main character. And this is precisely what Luke does in his, his his Gospel or his biography. Luke is keenly interested in reporting history and real events. Uh, as scholar Craig Keener says, he says gospels are ancient biography about a recent character for whom many sources remained. They are not, thus they are not, uh, they are thus not analogous to collections of mythology or novels. They do not report fictions about exotic lands. They do not report internal workings of divine courts, and do not report monsters or other fabulous creatures. So, when ancient readers began to read this, this passage from Luke, this beginning of, they would have actually begun to have expected history. They would have expected this to be about a real figure. Luke writes with the intention of recording historical events. In fact, one of the most important uh, pieces of uh, scholarly work done on the gospel genres was written by a guy called Richard Burridge, who wrote uh, uh, just a book a number of years ago, What Are the Gospels? Now, he went in with the expectation that he was going to try to prove that they weren't biographies. He thought that they had this different genre. His PhD was focused on demonstrating that the gospels were not uh, biographies. The problem was, when he finished his research, he actually concluded that they actually were. And so, he, so his research completely flipped. He, had, he changed his mind because he actually was persuaded that they are actually in the genre of an ancient biography. And so Luke writes with the intention. When we read it, when we open it, Luke has the intention of writing about historical events. Now, the second reason that we can trust the New Testament, particularly the Gospel of Luke, is because the authors were or consulted eyewitnesses. So look, in verse 2 there, Luke had access to eyewitness testimony of events. He, he was writing about events, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses. The, the Greek word is autoptai, which is the word for eyewitness, and servants of the word. Now, in writing history, consulting eyewitnesses' testimony is crucial. In fact, most of what we have from history comes from eyewitness te- accounts and assessing those accounts. In fact, I was chatting to a lawyer, a lawyer friend of mine once, um, not because I was in any trouble, but just because I asked him, he, was, he does criminal law. And I asked him, and he said, um, and I asked, so in a court of law, how valuable is eyewitness testimony? And he responded by saying, well, actually, the only really valid form of evidence admitted in a court of law is eyewitness testimony. In criminal cases, only what a, a person saw or heard or read is admitted. So eyewitness testimony is crucial. So to understand the events of the past in an historical or a legal setting, a legal setting is really just another form of historical setting, the evidences of eyewitnesses is fundamental. And here we see in verse 2 that Luke has, that the testimony Luke has concerning the events of Jesus' life, uh, his primary sources come from eyewitnesses. These people saw uh, the events of Jesus, have passed them on, and Luke receives and evaluates their testimony. And I think this is a really important reason why we can't dismiss the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, as a fairy story, because Luke has consulted with and uh, spoken to eyewitnesses to write about Jesus. And by doing so, Luke is following the standards laid out for good history writing in the Mediterranean world. Now, as I said, we have many good reasons to believe Luke intends to base his recollections on eyewitness recollections. Um, because the Gospel of John, was, well, which is another one of the, the biographies of Jesus, uh, was penned by someone who was actually claiming to be an eyewitness, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Some of the early letters of the New Testament were written by those who claimed to have heard and seen and with their eyes touched the word of life or Jesus himself. But now there's another really subtle, but I think really powerful and really interesting reason that we can believe the Gospels are based on eyewitness testimony is to do with the names recorded in the in them. This, this, this work came from a, a work that was written about 12 years ago by uh, Richard Borkham, who's an English scholar, who I've actually interviewed for uh, Bigger Crest, the, the previous show's name. Um, but he did, looked at the frequency and descriptions of names recorded in uh, Gospel and Acts and also the names which were recorded in the ancient world. So he, there were some people who collected the, the data, people who obviously have perhaps a bit more too much time on their hands, but it was very interesting. But anyway, it's very interesting data. Uh, and what they've discovered is that the frequency of the description of names of Palestinian Jews in the Gospel and Acts actually corresponds very closely with the names of the general population of Jewish Palestine in this period. But crucially, not Jewish names outside of Palestine. So that's an important distinction to make. Um, so they've managed to work out the, the frequency of names within Palestine, and there's a certain set of names that are frequent there, uh, but, those, but it doesn't correspond with those who are outside Palestine. So anyway, so I'll show you. I've got a couple of, um, of, if you like, statistics. And here's a couple. This this is the part of the presentation for you. Um, So here we can see that the percentage of names of men with names Simon and Joseph. So you might notice that some names are more popular than others. um, But we can see that there was... People have done some research to kind of look at the frequency of distribution of names. And we can see that the names actually um, roughly correspond. Now the point of this is that if you're going to um, make names up of who was in the the, um, the Bible then you wouldn't how would you know what the most popular names are? How would you know that Simon and Joseph were the most popular names in, of men at that time? you wouldn't unless of course perhaps you were actually there and similar statistics come with women as well, so the most popular names were Mary and Salome or Salome or I'm not quite sure how you pronounce that but again, we can see that there's rough sort of correlation between the most popular names. The nine most popular names sort of roughly correlates with the, the, um, the names there as well. And so this is, the relative occurrence of names closely corresponds, um, again, which is different from those outside of Palestine. Now, further to this, as I mentioned before, um, Simon was the most popular name in the ancient world. Um, now, if you were to... So, one of the, another way to sort of show that the Gospels perhaps are built on eyewitness testimony is because um, Simon, as I said Simon was the most frequent name in the New Testament and it's also the most frequent name in the Old Testament in, 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 in ancient Palestine now if you were to go to a party in the ancient world um, and you were to, went to and, they, and someone asked the question oh what happened to Simon what would then be your next question because they didn't have surnames in quite the same way we did and so you'd say the question would be, well, Simon who? Um, it may be Simon says, perhaps, if you're playing something else. But, um, but you said the question be Simon because you think, well, which Simon is it? Is it Simon, that Simon, that Simon, that Simon, that Simon? So there's so many Simons here. How do we, how do we know? Um, you'd need something further to describe you, wouldn't you? You'd just distinguish yourself from the other Simons. Um, so uh, so you then in the way that they did it in the ancient world was you'd be described by something about you. So your occupation, or your nickname, or your family name, or where you're from. And this is precisely what we observe in the New Testament. So if you're familiar with some of the Bible stories, you might remember that there's, if you think about Simon, they're often referred to by something else. So there's, they may be the occupation, for example, Simon the Tanner, or his nickname, Simon the Leper, or where he's from, Simon of Cyrene. But this is really interesting because for the less popular names names like Philip, which was the 61st most popular Jewish name in the ancient world, well, there's no need to distinguish yourself because everyone knows there's only one Philip in the room. And that's exactly what we find in the New Testament as well, that there's no sort of disambiguation. We don't need to actually give something else to to describe as Philip because he's just described as Philip. So it's the same as for other less popular names. Silas, which is the 68th, 68th most popular Nicodemus, the 80th most popular, they have no distinguishing features yet for more popular names like Simon and Joseph They'll actually or even Judas which was actually far more popular. They would have some description to describe who they were Now if you lived a long time afterwards You lived in a different land and you had no connection with these people How would you know what the most popular names were? How would you know which names you'd need to distinguish and which names you wouldn't need to distinguish? The best explanation, I think, is that these are real people and that their work is written by someone who was actually there, who actually knew these people. So they're not trying to make up a work of fiction to say, well, this is Simon the Tanner and this is just Philip. We'll say, well, actually, there's lots of Simons around and this was a real person, Simon the Tanner, and this was a real person called Philip. I think it's a, a little mark. It's a subtle. It's not, a, it's not a, by any means a, 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 a sort of a, a killer argument, but it's a subtle point to show that there's marks of genuineness in the literature of the New Testament. Little fingerprints of authenticity showing that the gospel is based on real people who were really there and it's been recorded for us. So I hope that you can probably ask more questions about that if you'd like some clarity on that. But I think that's a subtle but I think a very important way of demonstrating that the gospels have been based on eyewitness testimony. Now, I think some people have questioned the value of Luke's history because he wasn't actually an eyewitness himself. He depended on the eyewitness claims of others. It says here that uh, he, just as those who were eyewitnesses and service to the Word, basically handed them to him. Now, Richard Dawkins makes this claim in The God Delusion, and his logic is that the Gospels are historically untrustworthy because the authors never met Jesus. Now Dawkins is right at one level, that it's highly unlikely that Jesus... Sorry, it's highly likely that Luke never personally met or interviewed Jesus, but he talked with people who had. Luke, like any thoughtful sceptic, sort of followed the evidence, examined it, examined the claims of his followers, he consulted eyewitness testimony, and he sifted through other written accounts, and then he went around writing his own account. Um, In fact, I think Dawkins' logic is actually faulty at this point because he implies that the only form of acceptable history can be written by eyewitnesses themselves. But we don't apply this logic to other forms of historical writing. I have a little bit of an interest in World War II uh, history. And i read this book, this fascinating book, a number of years ago um, about Auschwitz. I'm not sure if anyone else has read it, but it's about uh, one of the German German concentration camps. It's a fascinating story. Now, the the thing is that this author, Lawrence Rees wasn't even alive when Auschwitz was operating. Yet, he can write good history because he consulted people who were. So Rees himself interviewed eyewitnesses, developed a, an account based on their recollections, uh, and Luke has operated in pretty much the same way. In fact, Luke's in a great position to write good history because he has access to these eyewitness testimonies and he can assess them. And so I think... Luke's preface here shows that not only has Luke himself consulted with eyewitness testimony, but the Gospels themselves are based on eyewitness testimony. And again, this is a second crucial reason for why we can't dismiss the Gospels as myth, fiction, or fairy tale. But how good was he really? No matter how many eyewitnesses he consulted, how good was Luke at doing this task? He might have had the best evidence from quality eyewitnesses, but... He still might have produced a lousy piece of work, and some do think that Luke was pretty ordinary. The authors that I outlined had no regard for the quality of the history written in the Gospel of Luke. They claim that the Bible is brimming with lies, most certainly not literal truth. Nothing of what remains can be trusted. But then we look here at, in verse three, which says that Luke, so it shows us how Luke has gone about writing his account. It tells that he's been investigated. He's carefully investigated everything from the beginning. Now, in the ancient world in particular, eyewitness testimony was valuable if the witness had um, observed events from the beginning, if they'd been present from the beginning, uh, from the start of an event, all the way through to the end. So, I mean, just as a little aside, this is one of the reasons that when they found a replacement disciple for Judas, Matthias was chosen because he had been present from the beginning. And so this is why Luke writes in verse 2 that the testimony he consulted came from those who were eyewitnesses from the first. And so what Luke does is he consults, absorbs, and thoroughly understands everything that these eyewitnesses have passed on to him. And he's qualified to to write a history based on those eyewitness accounts. In fact, you could probably argue that he's probably even more um, qualified than his predecessors because he's done this. Because Luke can tell the story from the beginning because he's familiar with the traditions who were eyewitnesses. From the beginning. But also note there in verse 3 that he's followed everything carefully. It implies that Luke has been meticulous. So he's checked and rechecked his findings. And he didn't, perhaps as some university or high school assignments are, that they didn't necessarily just go to Wikipedia and copy everything down unthinkingly. He didn't think, wow, this this gospel publishing business is lucrative. I better get in on the act. Um, No, he followed everything accurately and carefully. And I think this is another reason we can't dismiss the gospels as fairy tales. Now there are a number of events in the Gospels that we can't check with his external history because there's just no records, but there are some that we can check. And while some may challenge Luke's accuracy at times, he is highly accurate and consistent with many details that we can verify. So I'll give a couple of examples. If you do have your Bible there, in two chapters time, Luke, in chapter 3 verse 1, makes a series of historical predictions, or not, maybe not predictions, but historical statements, which can be checked. And it presents a massive challenge to those who claim that the Bible is simply brimming with lies. So uh, in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachatonis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now you see, what Luke has done here is actually, he's put his head on the chopping block because he's made a series of historical statements with historical figures that we can actually verify and check. Now the big question is, well, how accurate has he been? How well has he, has he just made this up? Has he just got this all wrong? Well, not only has Luke identified real historical characters he gets every historical detail correct according to our knowledge of ancient history. So he identifies the correct Roman emperor at the correct time, the correct Roman governor, the correct leaders and titles, the Tetrarch, and also Annas and Caiaphas are also correct. Now archaeologists used to question Luke's accuracy as they failed to find any records for this guy called Lasanias of Abilene, or Abilene, um, and so they kind of thought, well, Luke, he can't have this one right. We're not sure if this guy even exists. But this was until an inscription on a temple from the time of Tiberius was found in Abila, in the city of Abilene, which said this It said, For the salvation of the August lords and all their household, Nymphaeus, freedman of Eagle, Lysanius, tetrarch, established this street and other things. So this inscription, this you know, archaeological evidence that was dug out of the ground, correctly identifies the Lysanias as Tetrarch of Abilene in exactly the time that Luke records here. It's an enormous challenge to those who want to dismiss the Bible as mere fairy stories. Uh, one of the great archaeologists of the 20th century, Sir William Ramsey, early in his career, considered, along with many of his contemporaries, that Luke wrote his second book, The Acts of the Apostles, <clears throat> With no actual interest in history or truth, yet when Ramsay himself started reading the Book of Acts, he started to have a few doubts. And he read a section of Acts, chapter fourteen, verses five to twelve. <laughs> I've got a couple of parts of it there. Um, now this passage here. So it's, this is this is uh, again, jump. This is the, the sort of the, the Acts of the Apostles, the second well, Luke part two, so to speak. Uh, this is the sequel. Um, and here it says, uh, so he sets the scene in Iconium, Paul and Barnabas, and he explains what they did, and then uh, explains in verses 5 to 7 that there was a plot afoot among Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them, but they found out about it and fled to the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So what this is saying is, this passage says that Paul and Barnabas, on account of an angry mob, fled from this place called Iconium to Lystra and Derbe, the cities of Ly- <coughs> sorry, Lysania, <coughs> Lycaonia and the surrounding region. Now, what, now the, the important thing that uh, was, uh, alerted Ramsey to this question <coughs> is that Luke here thinks that Iconium is in a different region to Lyceonia. So he's traveled from Iconium to the Lycaonian cities of Derby and Lystra. Does that seems like a reasonable way? I think that seems to be reasonable. Um, so what he's effectively saying I've tried to do it on a little map. The, the bar- the, those borders are not um, accurate. The red border is just me kind of just trying to give you an idea about where um, Iconium of, of the La- La- Lycionia is. <clears throat> um, now, the, the, per- the prevailing view of historians at the time of Ramsey was that the Iconium was actually a city of Lycionia. And so, hence, historians thought, Luke's just got this wrong they thought when Luke writes of Paul and Barnabas going from Iconium into a different region, Lyceonia, that it was like saying Paul and Barnabas were going from Melbourne into the Victorian cities of Ballarat and Bendigo, or from London into the English cities of Manchester and Liverpool. It kind of shows that Luke really doesn't seem to know what he's talking about in terms of getting these regions right. He's a bit, of a, he's a bit shoddy. But what Ramsay did, as, as he dug out some things from the ground, he went on to show conclusively that Iconium wasn't part of Lycia, but actually from a different region called Phrygia. An entirely different region where the people were different and spoke a different language. <clears throat> he found a boundary marker which had been moved, an inscription which showed that Iconium was under the authority of Phrygia from the years 37 to 72. And it was only during these years that Iconium was not under the authority of Lycionia, which corresponds precisely to Luke's account. So if you were making things up decades later in a different location or wherever it would it would be unlikely that you would know this little local political situation of this changing location of, um, of Lyconia and of Iconium. It would be very difficult to actually get these little historical details correct. Now I think once this is realised, uh, we realize this, then Acts 14 makes a lot more sense and it comes to life with accuracy and color and it becomes plausible that the account is actually based on personal recollection and, and, and clearly accurate recollection. And the fact here, of the crossing the border between Phrygia and Lyconia um, and this is, um, and, and the, the speech of the people in Lystra and Lyconia in verse 11, which is a bit later, points in this direction. Now this was a particularly significant point for Sir William Ramsay, who changed his mind on the historical accuracy of the Acts. He went from thinking it was not based on truth or history to actually thought it was meticulously accurate to its professed historical setting. He said that the boundaries are true to the period in which the action lies. They are based on information given by an eyewitness, a person who had been engaged in the action described. The reader, if he reads the narrative rightly, can see with the eyes and hear with the ears of a man who was there and witnessed what had happened. William Ramsey's opinion of Luke completely reversed. No more was he suspicious of Luke's accuracy. Instead, he concluded with these great words. He said, Luke is an historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, he should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. So Luke writes carefully and accurately. He's written an orderly account. So Luke here writes, so Luke has written an historical biography. He's consulted eyewitness testimony from the beginning. He's carefully, accurately, and in orderly way drawn up an account of the things fulfilled among them. But why? Why did he write? Did he write just so that we could have seminars two thousand years later and talking about how good he was? Well, the answer is actually is found in verse four. There, he wants to communicate certainty. He wants Theophilus to know that to be certain of the things he's been taught. Now. We're not really sure exactly who Theophilus was. We're not sure if he was Luke's wealthy benefactor or he was a respected member of Luke's social circle. But whoever Theophilus was, he possessed an element of skepticism and uncertainty. Theophilus had heard something about Jesus. He might have heard about his miraculous birth or his miracles or snippets of Jesus' teaching. He might have heard about his tragic death perhaps or then the resurrection. Maybe he was asking, could Jesus really have been raised from the dead? Is that possible? What would that mean is jesus really the promised messiah who would bring salvation to the world so theophilus remained uncertain he needed certainty he wanted a firm and trustworthy foundation for what he believed and i think theophilus is very wise because if i'm going to base a big decision like this i'm going to make make a big decision in my life i'm going to if i'm going to orient my life around jesus and change then I want to make sure that it's based on a sure and firm foundation. I'd want the facts to be reliable. I'd want some degree of certainty as well. And this was the reason that Theophilus entrusted Luke to act as his inquiring historian, to write him a report, an historical report, which would consult eyewitness testimony, a report which would be thorough, accurate, and from the beginning, a report which would provide certainty." I think that we're probably all Theophiluses at some stage in our lives. We might be true believers, but then suddenly be faced with serious questions about the trustworthiness of the Gospels and the truth of the message. I'd encourage you to keep reading the Gospel of Luke, to know that he wants to provide certainty for the things that have been taught. Or perhaps you're here today and you don't really know much about Jesus at all. You might have heard snippets, but are uncertain. In that case, I'd encourage you to do the same, to read the Gospel of Luke. Explore further so that you may find some degree of certainty for what has been taught. Luke writes his report to offer Theophilus and us certainty about the things spoken about Jesus. So in this, I think, very brief introduction with a couple of snippets, we can see that I think there are reasons to trust the Bible. I think we've seen just through Luke's introduction here that the Gospels are clearly not fairy tales. They're serious historical documents and we have good reasons to trust them. And history is important. Understanding what happened in the Second World War is important. The Second World War changed the world. The war shapes who we are today and what we believe. It shapes our neighbourhoods. Why so many people immigrated to Australia after that Spain. It, it, it explains why Ligon Street has so many Italian restaurants and why Kokoda Track has become an important tourist do- holiday destination. But the historical claims of Jesus are far more important than the second world war. Jesus claims to be God himself. Jesus says he was the ultimate solution to all of our problems, even to death itself. It's a staggering claim. But if Jesus was who he said he was and he, then it makes a massive difference to us today. So I think that the claims of Dawkins, Onfray and others, that the gospels are ancient fiction, just don't stack up. They don't stack up with what Luke writes here because Luke writes history. He consults, consults eyewitness testimony, and he's being careful. And I think for atheists believing the Gospels are fairy tales is very, or ancient fiction is very convenient, because they can then con, um, they can dismiss the implications. It's like tobacco companies dismissing the adverse impl- impacts of smoking, or anti-Semitic organisations denying the Holocaust. These various forms of denial are convenient for those making the claims. Because if you s- accepted the conclusion, your life would have to change, or you and in, in 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 line of line with that. And so I think that these strident atheists would actually change. They have to change. They have to accept that yes, there is some good reasons to believe. And then it's not actually unreasonable or irrational to believe. And they might often have to accept that it's actually perfectly reasonable to follow Jesus. So if the Gospels are fairy, stale, fairy tales, sorry, stories, fairy tales, fairy, fairy, to, fairy tales or fairy stories, depending on who, how you say it, if they're either of those things, we can read them, enjoy them, and file them back on the bookshelf alongside authors like you know Tolkien, Rowling or Shakespeare. Nice stories, but not really relevant in the real world. But if it's history, And it changes everything. It means we need to take the claims of the gospel seriously. We need to think hard about who Jesus was, what he had to say. Is Jesus really the answer to the big problems of life? The answer to suffering, pain, meaningless, or even death itself. But Luke writes to provide certainty of the things that have been taught, and so that we know that uh, we can indeed trust that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And by coming to him, we can have life in his name. So that i think is all i had to share well sorry i've got plenty more to share but that's all i had written here (laughs) or i've uh, prepared for um does anyone now this is the time he's going to talk to me for a few minutes but yeah okay well thank you yeah so please i hope you've been submitting some questions because there's plenty more to talk about but oh thank you yeah I appreciate that because you actually have heard me now. So, so that's, uh, that's yes. Yeah, so anyway, so I, I, this is the part that probably everyone's been looking forward to actually the most is the Q and A time. I always enjoy Q and A, and so I enjoy asking questions. But yeah. yeah. So anyway, you tell tell us what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. So um, what's going to happen now is um, all the questions that may have been submitted to the number. And oh, um, and if you guys would like to like send in the number, uh, send in additional questions. Um, the numbers just there for you to text into, and um, yeah, basically it will be put up on the screen for Rob to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, have we got any questions yet? If not, um, I've got a question.
1: Sure. Why don't you start with your question, and then while are they... Yeah. I'm not sure how they're going to do this. So
0: you've spoken a lot about the um, the Gospels yes. and how they are um, very um, reliable. Well, there's and, reasons, well, reasons to well, believe reasons that they're believe reliable, yes. Um, how about some of the older books, that say, in the Old, Old Testament, Testament? For example, yeah. Genesis, that uh, happens to be, well, uh, also Much aims older. to be a narrative. <laughs> yep, yep. Um, but maybe because it's older, may, is it harder to verify?
1: One, one, that's a good question. And One of the reasons I tackled the Gospels is because the Christian faith stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection didn't happen, then we really should be not, we shouldn't be Christian. There's no question. Uh, we could perhaps be Jewish, uh, and that would be a, a separate question. Should I, should I be Jewish? And then, and that then would rely on the reliability of the Old Testament. So the reason I focus on the Gospels is because, particularly because of that point of the resurrection of Jesus. If the resurrection didn't happen, then we just should pack it up and go away. So to me, that's that's the kind of the clincher in terms of what is really most important. I was conscious that I haven't actually gone through the entire Bible because that's a a longer segment. But I suppose I just sort of thought I'd focus on that to give us some good reasons to think that actually happened. Um, The Old Testament is much harder to get... um, Harder to get sort of... Because it's a different... Sorry, in many cases, it's different types of literature and many different types of genres uh, of literature, and it's a lot bigger. It's also much older, which makes it much harder... To get the same kind of um, data that we have for the New Testament, so I think that's one of the one of the the big differences. So when you start, like a book like Genesis, for example, it deals with uh, historical facts going back much much further, of which in ancient um, uh, the ancient world there's just not as much historical stuff to connect it to, so to speak. So the links become harder to Get, to get in terms of external history like there's just lots of wars and characters and cities and stuff recorded in the old testament for which there's just no external evidence now does that mean that didn't happen i would i wouldn't say that's the case it's just, we just can't measure it um so that's why the further you go back it's just harder to do the same sort of tests that you would put on say the new testament just because the new testament whilst it's all ancient history is much more new and we have a lot more literature one of the other challenges to the Old Testament, as well, is that it's written in a time that literacy, it's, it's, it's like papyri and documents, etc. Some of the, the documents we have, just, there's just not an, as much. And so you've got to kind of dig around. So archeology span becomes more substantial for the Old Testament. I think there's good reasons to trust the Old Testament, I think, um, but for different reasons. It's just that you've got, to be, you, you've got to be careful with what you do with the Old Testament, I think. Um, my a- area, of, I, I've done a lot more time thinking on the New Testament. Okay. So I, would, I wouldn't claim to any have any particular, um, uh, 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 some particularly deep expertise in the Old Testament. But with that said, um, I have been reading with one of my kids. Uh, we read the famous thing online which has 50 characters in the Old Testament that have been verified by external sources. And so there's lots of, certainly in the King's era, there's lots of, Characters which the Bible refers to... Again, this is one of the reasons I wouldn't dismiss the Old Testament as, as simply myth or fable, is because it talks about historical figures, which there are references in real history. Um, one of the best is actually... is actually I think he's actually in Isaiah chapter... Oh, heck, where is it? Um, it's... The Siege of Jerusalem, where Isaiah is... Uh, sorry, Hezekiah is... Um, do you know where it is, Hezekiah? Yes, that's it. Yes, so I 38. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I'm glad that you're here. Um, but this Hezekiah was there was, a, was under siege, and there's an external. So basically, there's, there's a, the, the king of Israel at the time was Hezekiah. Uh, he was under siege by Sennacherib, and uh, there's a it's a, a, a brilliant um, reference by written by the um, Assyrians who the king of Assyria was at the time, where he writes that. Hezekiah was like a bird in a cage. That's kind of where we got them. Which actually corresponds beautifully with exactly what was happening in the Old Testament. So so again, I think to dismiss the Old Testament as simply being myth is just premature. Because there are real historical figures with genuine connections with the ancient world. But the problem is once you start going back a long way, the references start to become fewer and fewer just because the data set is smaller and harder to get references. And and stuff that's 3,000 years old plus, just that's, that's a long time. So it takes a long time. So anyway, That's a, the that's a beginning of an answer, but yeah. there are other reasons that we could perhaps go into. Maybe yeah. if people want to expand on that, I don't want to yeah. overdo, yeah. Um, okay, do we have the letter Luke wrote to the office or other original documents? If not, how can we know they haven't been changed for the years? Excellent question, and I have been, I would like to have talked about that, but I didn't talk about that. Um, there's a few reasons to, to know about this. No, we are, probably don't have the original letter that Luke wrote to Theophilus, uh, so the original Gospel of Luke. In fact, we probably don't have any of the original autographs, that's what they're called, uh, of any of the New Testament letters. But, uh, so that's the first uh, answer, is uh, no. Uh, how, If not, how do we know that they haven't been changed through the years? This is an excellent question. And we can do this by a, an interesting field called textual criticism. Because what happens is someone write so when when in the ancient world they had this gospel of Luke Luke wrote it down, and because they wanted to disseminate it, people copied it, and so then and then because and because they didn't actually have there was no email back then just in case you were wondering uh, there's no email there's no printing press there was no real way so you had to actually um, uh, copy it out. And so what happened then is then the copies were then copied and then they were sh- shared as well and then the copies of copies. And so the question then emerges is, well, how do we know that people actually copied correctly? Like, were, these scribal, were, were the scribes just bad and the, the things just got changed and things just got embellished, etc., over time? That's kind of one of the theories. That's what Richard Dawkins says in his God Delusion book. That's kind of what happens. It's kind of Chinese whispers that it just gets get better and better over time. And there are some who would argue that. One of the ways we can test against this, one of the ways scholars can test about if this has happened, there's a couple of different ways, but one of them is that um, when you start to see, there are scribes were not perfect, and they would make mistakes from time to time. Like they would skip a line, or they would get a spelling, they would make a spelling mistake wrong, etc., etc. And so, what you could do is you can identify these mistakes that scholars, that they have made in some of the copies that we have, but over time because then if you start you can then start working out whether a mistake was retained in the text because you find that someone has spelt Jesus' name like you know I'll just make, make one up this is not actually true but say they called Jesus Jesus, for example like he spelt his name wrong and then uh, you can find that if where, where that mistake has been copied by other texts which also calls him Jesus 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 in that same verse and you start thinking well we can say they made that mistake because they copied from this text here um, so you can start to see where mistakes have developed, and they could actually then start working out where the texts went after the New Testament was sort of originally written. What they've managed to do is they've actually worked out these different schools or different areas, and over time, sort of, they call them families, families of texts in different parts of the ancient world. And so as this a, a period of time, now, you, if you think that the Gospels are going to be changed over time, that these families should look very, very different, shouldn't they? That's, that's what you're expecting. If, you've, if someone's copied stuff, if they're just making stuff up, the family should look very, very different. Now, what they've managed to do is they've actually managed to check, um, centuries later, they've found manuscripts and they've managed to check the two families, recognize some of the familial resemblances, like where they've written Jesus and they've written Jesus in the same verse. But overall, they retain a high degree of fidelity, that the text actually demonstrates it hasn't actually been changed, that there's actually strong reasons to think that, um, that the text has been copied accurately. There's a couple of other ways we can do that as well. One is because we have so many manuscripts compared to other any other ancient document. Um, the most, if, if any other ancient document, um, the number of manuscripts etc. We have is, uh, is of a book is by Homer's Iliad. It's about 640 or so odd manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, and the time between the, the earliest manuscript and when we think it was written is about I think about 600 years or something which is actually very, very good for an ancient um, document. For the New Testament, and that's the best attested document we have in the ancient world, the New Testament is a bit different. We have actually over 5,300 manuscripts in the ancient world for the New Testament, spanning centuries. And in fact, the closest time to when we thought they were composed is in some cases less than 100 years, which would indicate compared to any other ancient document, the textual evidence we have for the New Testament is so far surpasses any other ancient work. In fact, there's um, so a scholar, F.F. F. Bruce, who writes that if the New Testament were any secular work, the validity or the veracity of its text would not be ever questioned if it was a secular work. Just because it makes some sort of outrageous claims, people will start to have some major, um, major claims about it. So that's a really significant thing. One of the other things about it is as well that there were also early on, there were some scribal conventions which were developed which were things called, um, uh, for those who uh, want to do a career in textual criticism, uh, called nomina sacra. So there were certain words which would be um, treated with sort of respect, like God, Jesus, Spirit, etc. And those conventions came in pretty early, and you could see them early copied in early manuscripts, which would indicate that the text was revered, that the scholars actually cared for what they wrote. They weren't just kind of shop, you know, writing it down quickly. And so I think we've got good reason to think that, the, that they haven't been changed for these because we can see these conventions coming in very at an early stage which indicated that they actually did, they were concerned for the text and for the text being changed. There's actually a really good bigger question. So if you want to check out the podcast, there's a good episode with uh, Gillian Asquith on this very topic. Actually, hasn't the Bible been corrupt and untrustworthy? I think it's episode 67 or 63, somewhere in the 60s, in terms of the podcast canon. Um, which is very interesting. And we talked about this verse, which I'll, if you want to flip to it, which is very interesting. This verse at the end of 2 Peter, uh, which was an intriguing... So I'm just going to find where 2 Peter is. So it's 2 Peter chapter um, 3, where it says at the end of 2 Peter 3, verse 14, Peter writes this. And this is one of the latest books of the New Testament composed. He says, So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Um, etc. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. So here he is, he's talking about uh, the words that Paul has written, in some of the, and, and he says he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Now it's interesting, if you were trying to change a message to make it more appealing, why would you keep in stuff that is hard to understand? So I think this is a little interesting sort of, again, it's not, a, not a, in any way a, 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 a sort of knockdown argument, but it's just an interesting argue, way to think, well, actually, they preserved the text because they thought this text was worth preserving. And hence, they kept in things that were hard to understand. They just didn't kind of smooth it over and try to, to change it. So anyway, that's, that's, there's obviously more to be said about that. But... I'd say that there's good reason to think that the text hasn't been... Ch- sorry, the text has been changed at times. People have inserted things at different times, but we can work that out because we can test it with other manuscripts and you might actually say, well, actually, um, we've got good reason to believe it. Yeah, is there a question? Yeah, it's at the very end of Revelation. Yes, it's an excellent pickup. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So it's Revelation twenty-two eighteen. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if anyone takes it, any... yeah. I mean, again, it's a, it's a little argument to say that within the, within the text itself, there were suggestions that this text is really important and you really shouldn't mess with it. Now, the question... That, so, that's, that's so excellent. Well done. A round of applause for the, our little Bible scholar here. That's very... very. But, the, but the, 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 the it does beg the question, though, well, did they actually do that or did they just kind of keep changing it? And that's where our textual criticism work and actually looking at and comparing manuscripts and some of the conventions that were developed actually will help us say, actually, they did a pretty good job of that. Sure, they made mistakes. Sure, they missed words. Sure, they missed lines. Sure, they spelt things wrong. They got names switched around. But in general, they didn't mess with it. In fact, um, you can work out why. So if you look at the end of Gospel of Mark, for example, it says, even in a manuscript, so Mark 16, so Mark, Mark actually ends at verse 8, which seems a bit strange to people. So verse 9 to the end that says the most reliable early manuscripts and other ancient witnesses do not have mark 169 to 20 so that's an indication that's that's the result of textual criticism they've looked at some of these early manuscripts seen this has been added and they're thinking well maybe i could see why they added it because the ending of mark seems odd where it finishes at verse 8 i think there's good reasons for it to finish there later scholars trying to be helpful thought well actually let's just fill it out a bit but we can work that out because of the textual criticism. So I think we have good reasons to trust that, um, that, that, that there's only three or four instances in the New Testament, only a few instances where that actually happens. Gillian um, explores more in episode 60-something of bigger questions, so you can all, um, should we can share that around with you later. Anyway, let's move on to the next question because there's plenty, I mean, that's a fascinating topic, but yeah. You use the Bible to prove the Bible. Is there evidence outside of the Bible that means we can trust the Bible? Uh, yes and no. I did use the Bible, but I didn't use the Bible to prove the Bible, I used the Bible to show what the Bible was trying to do. And so uh, it's kind of hard to say, well, how can I prove the Bible if I don't use the Bible? Because I'm trying to show, partly, as I said, my first point was trying to point out that the Bible intends to prove history. Um, And then, is there evidence outside the Bible that means we can trust the Bible? That was kind of point three of when I was trying to talk about um, when uh, Luke, how good was Luke at doing what he was doing? And we could test that with a couple of Historical points um, from, the gospel, from the Gospels and from the Acts, etc. So I think I, could, I take the point, you've used the Bible to prove the Bible, but I'm not quite sure how I could have demonstrated the Bible is reliable aside from doing that, uh, if someone can suggest a way that I could do that, um, because I think that was, point one was to show that it, this is history, based on eyewitness testimony, good reasons to believe those things, um, and point three is that we can trust what he said because, uh, yeah... Yeah, exactly. That's, not, that's not my point. So the names of one of the, the point of that is to demonstrate this. There's actually good reason to think there's eyewitness testimony, but also to point out the regions of, you know, in Phrygia, etc. That was what I was trying to point out there. There is more evidence outside the Bible that means we can trust it. I just picked a couple of good ones today. Um, uh, yeah, there's references to Jesus outside of. Uh, in fact, you can get the basic facts of Jesus' life without even reading the Bible. You could work out where he was born, that he was crucified under um, Roman cross under the under the right under the under Tiberius, um, and he and the and his believers his followers believed he was resurrected. You can get all that information, basic information, and he was a wonder worker. You can get all that information without reading the Bible at all. So, um, so I think yeah, if if, if the person if that if that's a that's a good question. I'm happy to to go through that a bit more. Um, but I'm also trying, But you can't dismiss the Bible as evidence. That's one of my points. I have debate. I remember doing a debate one time with some atheists. It was, I've done some foolish things in my life. Um, but going to do a debate with a debate about the existence of God in the a meeting of the Sydney skeptics was probably one of the not one of the best things I've ever done in my life. It was fun. It was great. But they kind of basically said along the lines of, "You can't use the Bible to prove the Bible." And I can't kind of think. Well, what do I what do I use? How can I, you've still got to accept that even if you reject anything that the Bible says, you've got to explain the origin of these documents. Why, in a very sudden, short period of time, do we have four Gospels, four biographies trying to explain this character who you ever never existed? So you've got to explain that. How, to, how did, did these documents emerge? And you've got all these letters as well, which explain this emergence of this movement that began How do you explain that? You've got to explain it. You've got to have some sort of cause that explains it. And this explosion of belief. So suddenly thousands of people believing this stuff, radically different to the previous belief, which was Judaism. You've got to to explain that. And so I think the idea that it's just kind of a myth that's fabricated, I don't think cuts it. Because even if you say, okay, you can't use the Bible. Okay, explain how we got the Bible. Explain Explain these documents. I don't think you can. Anyway, let's go for the next question. Bible is a real historical account, why do more people not believe, read, or are aware of the content? Excellent question. I wish I knew the answer at times. Um, Thomas Cramner, who's a, he had a very interesting saying. He says, what the heart desires, the will chooses, and the, and the mind justifies. So I think at times that we're not, it's not simply a matter of being presented with facts and you'll believe. Because there are, I've, I said, I've debated enough atheists and talk to enough atheists. In fact, I've heard some recently. If you've ever listened to the Unbelievable podcast, I'm not sure if anyone listens to the Unbelievable podcast. Yes, there's one uh, with Justin Briley. Um, fascinating podcast. You'll get a Christian and a non-Christian to come and talk about a topic. He had a debate recently between a well-known atheist in the U.S. called Hemet Mehta, who he's called the friendly atheist, which is kind of, he, he calls that himself. I don't, I don't actually think he's that friendly, but anyway. Um, sorry, this is being recorded. So I'm sure, I'm sure he's a friendly guy, but I, I don't find his, some of his interactions particularly friendly. But anyway, he was in conversation with um, this guy called uh, Josh McDowell, the son of Sean McDowell, who's kind of a famous kind of Christian apologist. The question was asked to, to Hamlet, what would convince you that this was true? And in the end, he kind of says, well, in the end, pretty much nothing. And so even if I presented what I've said, I think there's good reasons to believe here. The argument is not entirely always rational. Um, in fact, Uh, the brother of christopher hitchens is a guy by the name of peter hitchens i'm not sure if anyone have come across him but he's a journalist in the uk he was a staunch atheist he was a trotskyist he was very firm uh, atheist he says that he was asked the question once what would convince his brother to believe and he says well in in that case you kind of erect castles of the mind there's always ways of justifying your belief and so peter hitchens himself was converted by looking at a painting uh, it was nothing rational necessarily about it. And, and so for him, it was actually something completely different, according by the side. So my point is that sometimes, uh, if it's real historical, what do people believe? Well, because I think we often have competing hearts, competing desires, competing interests, and uh, there is a cost. It's clear that Jesus mentions it himself. There's a cost to following Jesus. You'll have to give up certain things, and you'll have to basically follow somebody. And for people who don't really want to do that, um, that's confronting, It's hard. And sometimes, yeah, people just say there's nothing that will convince them. Um, and, well, I don't know what you can do. Um, so, and I think, well, the other thing is people, why are people unaware of the content? Sometimes I think one of the big problems with our culture in Australia today is just ignorance. I consistently hear stories, and in fact I interview people on The Bigger Questions, sorry this is not meant to be an advertorial by the way, but um, but it's the show that I do and this is where I engage these big questions. I keep consistently meeting people and interviewing them on the show who met Jesus through the scriptures and were blown away. They just were completely, they just thought, wow, this is he's my, he's for me, he's my saviour, he's my friend, this is believable. But many people have actually not had the time or given the opportunity of just Having the spending the time to actually read a gospel for themselves, There's just um, so that's an encouragement to to for the, if you, those who who are not believers here and would like to, you should read a gospel. If you are a believer, give a gospel to one of your friends and just see what make see what they make of it and see what do they make of it. So how would you simplify? Can we trust the Bible for a child of say ten years old?
0: So maybe um, we can. I guess this can be the last question. Because oh, one
1: more. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's a good question i don 't want to I have an eleven year old boy, and i don't think I would want to simplify what it means to trust the Bible because I think sometimes in simplifying we can become simplistic and I think that's unhelpful um, I hear two sort of general stories as for, as for me i was I would have been not much more than ten maybe thirteen or fourteen when I was basically exposed to text criticism as i've because uh, that's there was it's just a matter it's the it's the manner rather than the actual content i'd say so it's just it was this, this this video that i watched from the bible society which just explained what i explained about how we know that the copies we have are accurate uh, it's just just a matter of how you actually do that i don't think that you want to um try to say that it's try to simplify it i think you just got to work out how to communicate it clearly Um, As I said, I have two different stories. One of those who grew up in non-Christian homes, people who who get converted in non-Christian homes, is generalization. Generalization. Uh, People who grew up in non-Christian homes tend to be attracted to the Christian message because they see something different in Christians. They see a Christian and they think, I want what they've got because there's something there that's different. Sometimes it's through rational argumentation, etc., but it's usually something about the Christian People who grow up in Christian homes, for them, one of the things that helps them understand the Christian faith is they need to know and understand that it's true. That was my story and it was my experience. Hence, that's the reason I want to read with my now 11-year-old that there's good reasons to believe that in the Old Testament, these figures have, we have references to these guys outside of that. And so I think that um, just trying to help a 10-year-old see that there's good reasons to believe that the Bible is true by... There's figures. Jesus is a real historical figure. We, here we go. Here's um, Josephus, who talks about Jesus. Here's um, uh, Tacitus, an ancient uh, Roman historian, who talks about Jesus. There's reasons to believe this is true, I think. So I, no, I think it's a hard one. I think that's, it, it's good. You want to make it clear to a 10-year-old, but you've got to be careful about making it too simplistic. Because just believe the Bible because there's a book that's written about it. I think that's just not, you know, that's just not particularly satisfying. Um, yeah. yep yep yeah. yeah mm-hmm yep Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think first one I'd ask them: Have you have you actually read a gospel? I think you want to ask them that question. Um, and then I think this is what I, what I looked at the beginning of Luke here, and because Luke tries to write history here, and so this is at the beginning. So looking the first four verses, if you know those first four verses of Luke, I think you've got three reasons there in front of you. One, he tries to write history. Two, he consults eyewitnesses, which is the best form of history. And three, he's been careful, and we can give you good reasons to believe that because we can match it with some of external history. So that'd be probably a starting point that you could start with, relatively straightforward. I would suggest, um, yeah. And then you give him the bigger questions podcast, and to, and to suggest that there's, there's some more, there's some more things for you there to to get. Would, would that be a helpful? Would that be helpful? Do you think as a starting point? Correct. Yeah, I just I just told to read it, and then I think read it, and then so, so Anna McGann, who's an actress, um, she read the Gospels for herself, and she didn't need convincing the, the the truth. She just read it, and she just said that they just rang true to me. Uh, and a lot of people feel that they read it, and you think actually you could ask them, do you read that? Do you think that's the work of someone making it up? Or I mean, if someone says back, oh, I couldn't believe it because there's miracles in there, and you think, well, that probably says more about your presuppositions than about the text. Um, but at the same time, you just say, what do you think of it? Does it sound like it's true? Just get them to read the text. Read the Gospel of Luke. Written by a guy who says, uh, an archaeologist who says that he's an historian of the first rank. Maybe that could be a starting point. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Last question. <laughs> What's a non-Bible book I should read that will help me understand the Bible? Um, it depends what you want to know about the Bible, <laughs> I suppose. it 's a... Uh, in terms of this topic, I've been helped by a number of books, but some of the books I've read are quite technical, so I wouldn't give them to a ten-year-old initially. Although I don't want to be condescending, sometimes ten-year-olds pick up stuff that I don't get. Um, uh, Craig Blomberg has written an excellent book called "Is the New Testament Historically Reliable?" So Blomberg is a very good uh, starting point. Sorry, it's, very good. It's, it's a very good. It's a substantial. It's a. It's not beginner level but it's not super advanced if you're interested in this topic blomberg's work is something you must engage with book that i really enjoyed reading and has been informative and obviously with the name stuff that i talked about is by uh, richard borkham called jesus and the eyewitnesses uh it was a kind of a groundbreaking book when it was released because it really because it, at that stage i think people had sort of said oh there's not much new in the historical jesus world and then suddenly borkham came out with all this fresh thinking and just sort of stimulated a whole bunch of discussion and stuff. So, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses would be good. Um, Historical Reliability of the Gospels by Blomberg. Another guy that I've had a bit to do with as well is Mike Lacona. Uh, He's written a couple of excellent books, and I think he's got one on the historical New Testament. He looks at, uh, what he's done is tried to compare the New Testament with one of the other ancient Roman biographies by Plutarch, Plutarch's Lives. So, he's got 50 lives So he's read through all the lives and he's tried to work out what the similarities and differences are. A a book came out, I think, a couple of years ago. I think it's called Is the New Testament Reliable or Can We Trust the Bible or something like that um, by Mike Lacona. And I think that's an excellent book uh, as well. Um, In terms of a non-Bible podcast, I would read or I would recommend... Yeah, I think it'd be bigger questions. (laughs) Sorry, yeah. yeah. Also, the unbelievable podcast, as I've just mentioned before, with Justin Braley. It's an interesting one. If you can kind of grate your teeth through an hour of kind of debate... Uh, but it will often expose very interesting ideas um, where you hear between a Christian and a non-Christian talking about... And I often talk about these sort of, these sort of ideas and um, questions. So that'll be a few places. up. But I can always give you some more um, details uh, as well. And if you're really interested, I could share you my... I, said, I wrote my honours thesis basically on this topic, uh, which is 100 pages of joy. Uh, academic joy, I'm sure, <laughs> that you could uh, really... Uh, I could, if I, I could potentially share some of that to you as well, if that would be helpful. But yeah, anyway, excellent. Um, yeah,
0: thank you very much, uh, Robert. No, no, my pleasure um, for sharing that with us. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think let's all thank him again for thank you. giving his time. <clears throat> and yeah, and um, I think it is fitting now to um, maybe even give God a bit of glory and like. Praise him. So uh, maybe what we will do now is uh, we're going to sing a song. Um, it's called the Creed, and it really reaffirms all the core um, beliefs that we hold on to as Christian.